This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church located in Mequon, Wisconsin. Our vision is to captivate generations with the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please check out our website, myabc.church. One of the challenges that uh, Christians face uh, the longer we walk with Jesus is what I'm going to call theological entropy. <laughs> to put it simply, entropy is the tendency of things to break down and wear out over time. And what I mean by that is this. In the church, we have a, a language or a jargon, if you will, concerning matters of biblical teaching. But if that language isn't continually refined uh, by the details found in Scripture, our theology has a tendency to become oversimplified. Theology that remains attuned to all of Scripture's details requires a tremendous amount of effort and intentionality. This is why careful study of the Scriptures is a daily necessity. Without it, we will drift into theological entropy. Our theology will become diluted and oversimplified. Obviously, as a pastor and a preacher, that's of um, concern to me. And uh, I have a, a vested interest in seeing us avoid theological entropy, particularly as it relates to the cross of Jesus Christ and the gospel that emanates from it. Without that careful study of the scriptures, Good Friday will have a tendency to become flat, colorless, and domesticated. The cross of Jesus Christ and the message it communicates is vibrant. It's multicolored. It's multi, uh, multidimensional. And so as we prepare for the table, what I want us to do is just to take a close look at one passage of scripture and show you how that's true. We're going to do a Bible study today in preparation for communion. So you're going to need your Bibles open. You're going to need them open. So if you don't have one on your lap, pause the video and go get one. And get it open to Galatians chapter 3, verses 10 to 14. Galatians 3, verses 10 to 14. Let me read. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith, but the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. This is God's word. Now let's get our eyes in the book. 
Let's get our eyes in the book and let's start looking through this. Start at verse 10. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. Here's the question. What are the works of the law that Paul refers to? Well, if we keep reading, he actually explains what he means. Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. So works of the law are defined as everything written in the law and the curse is unleashed on those who fail to keep everything commanded in the law. Now what would be included in that? Cursed is anyone who fails to keep all the commands of the law perfectly. Certainly the Ten Commandments are among those. You shall have no other gods before me, the Lord says. What he's saying is, I'm to be your number one. I'm your number one love. I'm your number one allegiance. You're to value me more than you value any other person or thing. Honor your father and mother. Treat them who are in authority over you with respect and dignity, caring well for them. You shall not steal. Don't take even the smallest thing that doesn't belong to you. You shall not bear false witness. Don't be spreading rumors about people. Don't engage in gossip. Don't covet. In other words, be content with what you have. That's just a portion of the Ten Commandments. And that's not even the extent of the law. There are hundreds of others. Now, some, some recent commentators have argued that Paul was referring to the disobedience of Israel as a nation and not to the sin of individuals. However, that won't hold water because in the context of Deuteronomy, God's curse clearly falls on individuals who fail to keep the law. So Paul's argument in verse 10 is that anyone who is relying on obedience to the law must obey the law and do all things written in it or else face the curse. The sentiment is echoed in James chapter 2 verse 10. Whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. In other words, to avoid the curse, perfection is required. Perfect obedience to God is required if one is to avoid the curse. Now, what is that curse? We're going to come to that momentarily. Look down again, verse 11. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. So Paul introduces a term in this section of text that is related to his argument in verse 10. The term justified is a term that he has already talked about in chapter two. What's interesting, however, is the fact that he brings it up here in the context of his idea in verses 10 to 15. Uh, just being justified is set in contrast to being cursed. Justified is in contrast to being cursed. So what does it mean to be justified? Well, Paul is undoubtedly drawing on an Old Testament term, a Hebrew term, a Hebrew word called tzaddik. Now, what I want to do is read several verses of the Old Testament where that word is used. And all I want you to do is to get a picture in your head or pay attention to the, the, the kind of language that's used in these Old Testament verses. Listen to these. Exodus 23, 7. Keep far from a false charge and do not kill the innocent and righteous for I will not acquit the wicked. Deuteronomy 25, 1. If there is a dispute between men and they come into court 
and the judges decide between them, acquitting the innocent and condemning the guilty. 2 Samuel 15, 4. Then Absalom would say, Oh, that I were a judge in the land, then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me, and I would give him justice. 1 Kings 8. Then hear in heaven and act and judge your servants, condemning the guilty by bringing his conduct on his own head and vindicating the righteous by rewarding him according to his righteousness. Now, you, you, you can hear it, right? You can hear it. This term justified is the language of a judicial declaration. There's a judge. There are defendants. There's a courtroom of sorts. There's a trial or some sort of scrutiny. So in Galatians 3.11, God is the judge and human beings are the defendants. And not one defendant is justified before God on the basis of obedience to the law. But rather, as verse 10 tells us, perfect obedience to the law is actually impossible. Now notice the next phrase. The righteous shall live by faith. This word righteous is from the very same word group as the word justified. The two are related. They're siblings to one another. How a person is found right, how is a person found righteous or justified? Well, by faith, Paul says. Or to put it differently, no one can be found righteous through adherence to the law. Look at the next phrase. But the law is not of faith. So Paul explains further why it is no one can be found righteous by the law. Righteousness or justification cannot be found through the law because the law requires perfect human performance. And as we'll see in the next verses, faith looks to what God has done in Christ for righteousness and justification. Faith relies on God's work, not ours. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. This is a quotation from Leviticus 18.5. It essentially says that eternal life is promised to those who keep the law, all of it. Live by the law, die by the law. Law obedience, however, is contrary to faith since it is predicated on obeying instead of believing to obtain salvation. Look down, verse 13. Christ redeemed us. Just pause there because we're introduced here to another theologically loaded term. The word redeemed. The word redeemed harkens back to the Exodus event when God freed Israel from the bondage of slavery in Egypt. If, um, if we were living in ancient Israel and uh, my brother Kyle was to fall on hard times financially to the point where he has to sell his car in order to feed himself, his closest relative, me, would have to come and buy back his car from whoever he sold it to and then I would give it to my brother, that's called redemption. It's undoing loss. It's undoing a condition. It's, it's pulling someone out from underneath a burdensome weight. I'm redeeming his stuff. The text says Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. Jesus undoes a condition we're all in, being under the curse of the law. How does he do it? 
by becoming a curse for us. So now we come to this word that we've been curious about since we encountered it in verse 10, this word curse. Blessings and curses are all over the pages of the Old Testament. When God is speaking to Israel, revealing to them his will for their lives and nation, he pronounces a number of blessings and curses. You will be blessed if you do this and that, and you'll be cursed if you do this and that. So time and again, as the blessings and curse are being pronounced, time and again, the curse is actually the same. The curse is exclusion or expulsion from the land and exclusion or expulsion from the community of Israel. Now it's important at this juncture to remember the significance of the land. The promised land was the dwelling place of God. Today, that is not a geopolitical nation. The dwelling place of God today is the church. It's Jesus Christ himself and it will be the new heavens and the new earth. So the curse of the law that hangs over all human beings is exclusion from the dwelling place of God. But Jesus became the curse for us. Notice next in the text, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. This is a quotation from Deuteronomy 21. When someone was condemned to die because they were found guilty under the law, they were executed and then their body was put on public display as a demonstration of divine rejection and the heinousness of the sin committed. The text says Jesus became a curse for us, which means all of that, all that curse language and, and, and what it comes with all of that comes and is, is, is put on Jesus. He's excluded from the dwelling place of God. Mark 15, 34 alludes to this. He, he experienced divine rejection. He's treated as though he was found guilty of sin. Of course, we know Jesus was innocent, holy, and perfectly righteous. So what t- Paul is talking about here is echoed in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For our sake... He made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus was judged, convicted, and punished as as if he lived your life in order to pull you out from underneath the curse of the law. Jesus' work on the cross does even more, even more than that because now we have enough of the picture to fully understand what it means to be justified because keep in mind, being justified and being under the curse are set in juxtaposition to one another and contrasted with one another. So to be justified means to be judged, scrutinized, weighed, measured, and be found innocent and righteous and therefore to be included, included in the dwelling place of God and included in the community of God's people. So that in Christ, in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Now what is the blessing of Abraham? Well, just a few verses earlier in this chapter, we're told Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. So Abraham was treated as if he was actually righteous, even though that righteousness does not inherently belong to him. This is the blessing that comes to us Gentiles And when it does, we receive the promised spirit through faith. Now, the mention of the spirit here is not not an add-on. To receive the Holy Spirit by faith is to become the dwelling place of God even as you enter the dwelling place of God. Now, 
there's our Bible study. I want to, in the time that we have left, offer three reflections on this text as we approach the table and remember the rest of this Good Friday. The first reflection is we need to take some time to think about the sinfulness of sin. The sinfulness of sin. In the American church today, we have been flirting with, I think for some time, badly underestimating the vileness of even the smallest sin. We have put a high gloss veneer over it. And as a result, we're indirectly downplaying the severity of the cosmic treason we've committed and the punishment it deserves. The curse Jesus experienced on the cross, remember the text says he became a curse for us. He took the curse that was due us. Think about it. He was expelled from the dwelling place of God. He was excluded from the people of God. He was judged, convicted, punished, visibly put on display as one truly rejected by God. For what? Because we failed to obey God in all things. Listen. Just one sin necessitates the cross for your salvation. Just one tiny sin necessitates the cross for your salvation. I want you to picture this. Imagine living in Florida or California. You're next to an orange grove. Massive orange grove. Many acres, billions of oranges. Those oranges, billions of them belong to your neighbor At the property line where his land meets yours, one of the branches to one of the trees is extending over onto your property. And one day you're out for a walk and you casually pick one of his oranges and you eat it. What would Jesus have to do in order to redeem you from the curse of that sin? It's just an orange. It was just one orange. It was just one orange out of billions. And the answer is, he would have to do what he did. In order to get out from underneath the curse, you have to obey all things in the law. Failing at even one point makes the cross of Christ necessary to receive the blessing of Abraham. Righteousness, justification. See, I wonder if we're prone to think that the cross was necessary because the world is so big and the world is so bad. If the world was significantly smaller and if the world wasn't so bad, then maybe the cross wouldn't be necessary. But that's a bunch of malarkey. If you were the only person on the planet and you failed to live in accordance with the law of God at even one small point, the cross would still be necessary for your justification. So the extremity 
of Jesus' suffering and anguish is an emphatic indicator of the sinfulness of sin. Now, there's no need to be embarrassed by these words. God is not a sentimental old Father Christmas. But he is the righteous judge of humankind. Second, we need to contemplate the inadequacy of good works. The text says it, look at it, no one, no one, no one is justified before God by the law. No one. When you want to be accepted at a place of employment, you give that potential employer something that you hope will cause them to accept you as an employee. And what is that thing that you give them? You give them a validating performance record. A validating performance record. A resume. When you want to uh, apply for a job, you put together a validating performance record, a resume. You send off that resume to your potential employer as a way of saying to them, this is why I'm fit to be accepted for the job you're offering. Or if you want to get, to, to, you want to get into college or graduate school, you send your validating performance record, a transcript. And by sending that transcript to that particular school, you're saying to them, this is why I'm worthy to be accepted as a student at your school. We need a validating performance record to be accepted as an employee, to be accepted as a student. We also need a validating performance record to be accepted by God. Now, most people think that if they live a good life, a moral life, their validating performance record will be good enough to gain them God's acceptance. But the Bible says that if we want to be accepted into God's kingdom, our validating performance record has to be perfect. We just got done looking at it. Nobody's is. Thus our need for Jesus. Jesus comes into our world. He lives a life. He puts together a validating performance record of his own. And the thing about his is it's perfect. And then he offers it to us. He offers his own validating performance record to us as a gift. That's grace. This is unmerited favor. See, every other religion and every other worldview out there says you have to do better. You have to improve your validating performance record. It's all up to you. But true Christianity is something completely different and unique. Jesus lived the life you should have lived and died the death you should have died so that by faith you get credit for it. By faith, you get to hold Jesus' validating performance record in your hands and it becomes your admission ticket into the dwelling place of God. Good Friday is an occasion to reorient ourselves to the bleak reality that our good works are woefully inadequate. Last, we need to meditate on Jesus, our saving substitute. There are two words in verse 13 that we likely speed through without a second thought. Look at it with me if you would. Galatians 3 verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For us. Now notice it doesn't say Jesus redeemed us by taking a curse. 
it says he redeemed us by becoming a curse. And it says for us. The original language, the word is huper, which means on behalf of or in the place of. In other words, Jesus got what you deserved so that by faith you can get what he deserved. See, if you want to know what the verdict on your life without Christ is, look at the cross. On the cross, Jesus was treated as if he lived your life. That's what happened. On the cross, Jesus was treated as if he lived your life. And he did this so that we can be treated as if we lived his life. Jesus received the curse you deserved, expelled from the dwelling place of God, excluded from the people of God, publicly displayed as a symbol of divine rejection so you can get the blessing he deserved. Because of Jesus' work on the cross, when God looks at you, he no longer sees your sin and evil and vileness, but he sees the holiness, perfection, and righteousness of Christ. He's our saving substitute. So as we sing and as we partake of the Lord's Supper, let's remember something. Let's remember something. We were so bad, so bad, Jesus had to die for us. Had to die for us. And yet we are so loved. Jesus was glad to die for us. Let's pray. Jesus, the lengths you went to in order to rescue us from the curse of the law and sin and give to us your righteousness demands we pay close attention to every detail the scriptures tell us about it. Jesus, let us not lose sight of the sinfulness of our sin. Let us not gloss over it as if they're just a collection of incidental mistakes rather than treasonous acts against a holy God. And Jesus, when we're tempted to think our works can compensate for our innumerable failures, draw us back to words like the ones in front of us which dispel any notion that we can somehow merit your acceptance of us. But Jesus, do draw us back to yourself, our great substitute, who lived the perfect life we could never in a million years live and who died in our place the cursed death we rightfully deserved. I pray that our hearts would be convicted over our sin, but they would simultaneously be inflamed with adoration for you. We worship you now. Amen.